The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. What we're going to do is I'm going to read through our passage as we preach through it. But what I want to do as a way of kind of bridging us into the situation is remind you of Frozen 2. Um, are you guys familiar with Frozen 2? I, some of the young parents in here are like very familiar with Frozen 2. Are you guys familiar with Frozen 2? Okay, spoiler alert, I'm about to give away some things, okay? So, um, Elsa starts hearing voices, never a good sign, right? So, Elsa starts following those voices and awakens the spirits from the north. She has to go on this big quest to go figure out who they are and who she is, and in the process, Anna, her dearest friend, closest sister, all that stuff is incensed that Elsa would not have told her about the secret. And so Anna follows her on the way up there, and of course, Olaf as well. You guys, do you guys know who Olaf is? I'm not gonna put pictures up on the screen. I just, I felt like that was a little much. You guys know who I'm talking about with Olaf, right? The snowman, right? Okay. Elsa has to go on her own special secret quest up north. Anna gets kicked out of the quest. She gets, she ends up, I can't remember exactly how, but she ends up in a cave where she's kind of like, oh, boo-hoo, my sister's gone, what do I do next? And then everything in her life kind of starts to fall apart. Bro, for real, when Olaf melts, no, no joke, I for real cried. Okay, it's in that moment where <laughs> Anna's life is all falling apart, and she sings this wonderful song, do the next right thing. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, my understanding is that I'm looking at Carrie Lynn this whole time because I'm like, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, it's Car- me and Carrie Lynn are on the same page here, right? <laughs> so... Anna, in this moment of what do I do with my life, everything is falling apart. I don't know what the next thing to do is. My sister's left me. My kingdom's falling apart. My best friend just melted. We all know what that's like, right? (laughs) She she sings, do the next right thing, which, as I understand, I think that's like a line from Elizabeth Elliot, or Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book along those lines, do the next right thing. She's in this moment, I think that we can all begin to relate to, whether you have a friend who melts or not, is... I don't know what to do. My life is so complicated. The situation is so, I'm painted into a corner. I don't know what the next right thing is to do. I don't even know what I'm, what I'm doing with my life right now. None of this makes sense. God, what am I supposed to do next? I think that's where we find ourselves in chapter 21 of Genesis, to kind of make a bridge from Disney to Genesis. Here we have, up to this point in the story, right, We've had God tell us, here's how I made the world, and now I'm going to zero in on one person, on Abraham. And Abraham, I'm going to call him out from being a moon worshiper to being a God worshiper. And in the process, not only is he going to make a lot of mistakes, I'm going to continue to pursue him to make a covenant with him. And in the midst of how him and his family mistreat all the people in his life, specifically Hagar, I'm going to continue to work in their lives. And here we get through all of that to Genesis 21. The big thing that God keeps promising is the sun that keeps not coming, right? Um, some of us have watched TV shows where you're kind of like, what's the big reveal? And it never shows until like season five or whatever, right? This is that in the book of Genesis. So let me read here, Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to kind of land on our main point and start to work through this. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac uh, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have nursed children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You see, here we see God continuing to pursue Sarah and Abraham. God, in the midst of all the confusion of what's about to unfold in the rest of this chapter, has proven that he is the one who is faithful, not Abraham and Sarah. So here's what our main point is in the midst of this passage. God pers- God's persistent faithfulness is enough strength for our wavering faith. If you have questions, by the way, that's the number to send them in. Do those at the end. God's persistent faithfulness is enough strength for our wavering faith. So what we're going to see here is we're going to continue. We've been working with these characters, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, all through the last kind of six chapters or so, eight chapters or so. We've been talking with them, hearing from them about what is it like to walk with God, and God's continuing to pursue them. And we're going to see these are individuals called to be faithful to God, to walk with God. And we're going to continue to see how their faith wavers all over the place. But what keeps them moving forward is not the strength of their faith. It is the type of God that they're following. It is God's persistent faithfulness to them. So, we're going to pick up here, we're going to revisit these verses 1 to 7. And we're going to see one of the three vantage points this passage has for us. On what does it mean to have faith that wavers all over the place and yet continues to walk with God. Faith blossoms under God's long-term care. This is what we're finding in Sarah's life. That faith blossoms under God's long-term care. So we've just read the passage, and I want to remind you. Sarah is married to Abraham. They had different names at the beginning of all this. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you children as many as the stars. Now, if that's a promise that God made at the beginning of their marriage, when they're both young and healthy and fertile, man, great. But God made that promise to them way after, 50s, 60s, in that range. God promises them this. Then Sarah, along the way, has been subjected to all different types of, like, disappointments. We talked about this a few weeks ago, where she might have the feeling of, like, God's made this problem, but I'm God's made this promise, but I'm the problem. I'm not the one who can conceive, right? God, um, Abraham along the way uh, left his wife to uh, being exposed, to being potentially uh, used or abused by the king of the town that they were visiting. Along the way, Sarah came up with the idea, you know what, let's give Abraham, to fulfill God's promise, let's give Abraham Hagar, and Hagar will have a son. God says, no, no, that's not good. You should not have done that. I'll work with that, but that's not what we're going to use. And yet here we come all the way up to when Sarah is probably like 30 to 40 years after the promise was made. Sarah here, 99 years old. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So there is something that happens in Sarah along this whole track where she has a change of heart. 
Hebrews 11, this passage really honestly doesn't give us a lot of insight into this. Hebrews 11 gives us a little bit of some insight here. This is the hall of faith, right, of Hebrews 11. Anybody who's read the Bible before, you know. Hebrews 11 is kind of like, these are all like the great heroes of the faith lived. There's eight verses devoted to, I think, of this chapter. And in that, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, if you remember where we were picking up from last week, Sarah was laughing in God's faith, face about him having, giving her a child when she was in her late 90s. She was mocking God, laughing in God's promise behind closed doors, so to speak. And yet somehow in that period where God corrects her in chapter 18 to chapter 21 where we are now, something has changed in her heart where she says, he who promised is faithful. There's something, a, a burgeoning of faith, we might use the, the, the title for this section, a blossoming of faith, a conversion or repentance of some kind that happens in Sarah's heart that's implied in how she responds to God. Because you'll notice, right, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he has promised. And Hebrews says that she conceives because she has the power of faith. There was something in her faith in response to God that allowed her to be able to conceive this child. Now, and Sarah said to God, God, verse 6, God has made me made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she did, let me give a comment here in a second. And she said, he, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have nursed children? So, Sarah's story up to this point is being disregarded, becoming an abuser of some kind, somebody who laughs at God, and yet God is the one who continues to pursue her, to be faithful to her, and so when she conceives this child that, prom that was promised 30 years ago, and, right, and this isn't just kind of like for a promise for you and me of like, God's going to be faithful to us, he's going to help us, like this is like I mean, I don't know what you would do, but if God knocked on my door and said, Jacob, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, I would be like, I would like that tomorrow. Waiting 30 years is not exactly my idea of a fun time for a billion dollars. It's a little bit more than that. It's a child. But here, when she laughed in God's face, God's faithful to his promise, and she names her child laughter for joy. You're beginning to see some of the, the kind of like textual things going on in the story where it's like she laughed at God, now she laughs for joy with God. She names her child that, but did you notice here in the middle of verse 7, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have nursed not a child, children. She's only conceived and had one child, and she's never going to have another child again. But this is a sign that she has finally come around to believing God's promise that she will be the mother of as many children as there are, or as many stars as there are in the sky, right? All scientific measurements are 100 billion trillion. Like you add a trillion and a billion, that's how many stars there are in the sky. That's what God's saying. Here, she has become, she's, she's come around to having faith in what God is going to do for her. See, I think, what this gives us a window into is this, what I, I kind of refer to as this faith cynicism spectrum. 
Sarah, along this whole story, largely has kind of been on that cynicism side of the spectrum. I mean, she literally laughed in God's face the last time we were looking at her story. And yet somehow in those 30, 40 years, she's gone from this, okay, God, I'm going to laugh in your face. How are you going to possibly do this? You realize I'm old. I can't have children anymore. This is like, I'm like, like way past retirement age. This is like not going to happen for me anytime soon. Two, I believe God without having conceived a child because something's happened in God's care for her over that time. There's something that's changed. We don't know. We don't really know the inner workings of this, but I think this maps onto our own lives. We often, where are you at on any given day of the last week? I mean, if you were to look at my life over the last week, where, where were, was I more cynical or more faith-filled? I don't know. I mean, I think the general trajectory is like tilting slightly towards faith, but, you know, other weeks it's tilting more towards cynicism. And yet here we have a 30-year story of God continuing to pursue Sarah. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. God is the one whose faithfulness preserved Sarah's faith and gave her the terrain to struggle, gave her the terrain to, to weep, to be cynical, and yet in the midst of that is God's faithfulness to her that blossoms and births this faith that eventually sees the light of day. You might even say that just kind of like um, an iceberg, what, 90% underwater, 10% above. That's often where faith lives. We see a lot of waters of chaotic cynicism, and yet God is the one preserving the faith that anchors underneath. We're going to continue to visit. We're going to, in the next point, we're going to visit this faith cynicism spectrum because I think it shows up in every person in this story. One point I want to pull out here, and then we'll move on. William Gurnall, I don't know if you guys know who that name is. He's an old dead guy. Um, he has this to say. Every promise is dated, but with a mysterious character for want of skill in God's chronology, we are prone to think God forgets us when indeed we forget ourselves. In being so bold to set a time of our own and in being angry when he does not just, when he comes not just then to us. Basically, this is an old English way of saying we put a time stamp on when we expect God to be faithful to his promises, and then when it expires, we get angry at God because he didn't fulfill the time stamp that we put on his promises, right? Think about all the expiration dates on the food in the store, right? We take God's promises and we say, God's going to show us justice. God's going to show us faithfulness. He's going to show us by fill in the blank for a promise, and we put, I don't know, November 3rd, 2020, or 2022, sorry. Way expired if it's 2020. <laughs> and then we get frustrated when it comes to December 2nd, and we're like, God, bro, this is three weeks over. Like, where are you? God's promises are banked on God's character, and he never falls through. But that does not mean that we get to tell God, your promise for smiting my enemies or whoever it is, right? I'm not saying that your enemies need to be smited. Maybe they do. the promises of God to be faithful to us. Because the point, as we've seen all through this story, is not that we get the gift, it's that we get our God. That's the point 
of having this type of gut. Okay, you guys tracking? We're cool? We're gonna go here to second point. Second thing, we vantage point we see about faith, not only does faith blossom under God long-term care, faith entrusts life's bewildering dynamics to God. All right, so we're going to read a little bit of a story here, and we're going to kind of pause at various points. All right, so here we have verse 8, chapter 21 of Genesis. The child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day when Isaac was weaned. So this is about, you know, three years old or something like that. Sarah saw the son Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born, um, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So when she, so she said to Abraham, "Cast out the slave with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac." And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on according account of his son. But God said to Abraham. Be not displeased because of the boy and because you have uh, because of your slave woman. Whomever or whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation for the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her, sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Okay, a few things to kind of comment on. I don't think that Abraham put the child on her shoulder. He put the water on her shoulder with her son. Her son was probably about 15 years old. So to go back up here to the top of the story, here's what's going on, right? A big feast, three-year-old baby being weaned, eating solid foods, totally like that, only, only eating solid foods. This is not the first time in history where a 15-year-old has been a jerk. That's kind of basically what's going on here in this story, right? I was a 15-year-old. I definitely remember being a jerk. But basically, when it says laughing, this laughing is not kind of like ha-ha laughing. This is more kind of like mimicry, kind of like basically here's a 15-year-old punk kid pretending to be a 3-year-old for laughs and joking, maybe making himself the center of attention. Like I said, not the first time a 15-year-old has been a jerk in history. And Sarah's response to this is basically say, he is against my son. Um, this is not a safe place for my son to grow up. It's likely that he's going to continue to push this so that he gets in and undermines the seriousness and validity of Isaac's inheritance. So she's got to go. That's basically the story right there. It, it's, um, it's not exactly what I would have done, but I don't know what I would have done. I mean, just to ask the question, Imagine yourself in Abraham's situation. You have I'm, nobody in here, to my knowledge, uh, is in a polygamous relationship. So points for that, okay? <laughs> um, but you have one woman with a son who is your son you care about, not your wife. You have another woman who is your, who is your wife. She's been given a promise by God to have this child and now you have a three-year-old. I mean, what would you do? I mean, I, legitimately, like, what would, Dave, what would you do in that situation? No idea? It's like the 15-year-old's going after the three-year-old. Like, what do you do? Like, any input? It's a weird, like, everybody's kind of locking up because you're kind of like, what would you do? All right. 
let me just finish out the story, and then we'll visit that story, that question again. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. So very likely what's going on here, again, we think of putting a child under a bush like a three-year-old, but it's probably like 15-year-old fainting, right, exhausted from the trip, sets him down, sits under the bush, goes sit someplace else. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, and she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy, the boy to drink. And God was with the boy. He grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife from him from the land of Egypt. Here you have, again, remember, the only time in, hum- in the Bible where somebody names God is Hagar herself, right? Remember this. The only person who is a mortal, a human, who gives a name to God from cover to cover is Hagar herself. And what is her name? What is the name she gives to God? The God who sees. You know, here she is. She's blinded by her circumstances. God comes to her and gives her grace to see. Literally, probably there was no difference. The water was probably there the whole time. Like, this probably is not a miracle. She was just blinded by her circumstances, blinded by her exhaustion, blinded by all the things going on. God opens her eyes to see what God has provided for her. So, here again, we have in this story Abraham who has gone from responding in faith to God, I'm going to follow you to give me a land that you've promised. God, I'm going to make your promise happen in my own terms. So you think of that faith cynicism. He's gone from being having faith in God to having cynicism that God's going to respond and fulfill his promise, has a child with Hagar, and yet here he is going back on the faith side of like, God, what do I do with this situation? I don't know what to do. Hagar who's being called out to be, a, you know, probably just kind of basically the, the handmaid to Sarah along the way. Okay, God, you're with these people. I'm going to follow them. Um, being abused by them and used by them to have a child. So cynicism side of things. Running out into the desert, seeing God, responding to God, and naming God. Faith side of the spectrum. And yet here she is being kicked out of the house yet again. God, have you forgotten us? Back to that cynicism side of the spectrum. Yet God pursues her and provides for her. And who knows with Sarah, right? Here, chapter 1 of, 20, of 21, uh, God, you're going to provide for me. You provided for me. You're going to give this child to us. Names a child. Is she being faithful cynicism here with kicking this woman out of the house with her son? I don't know. I think what this draws us into is that in the life of faith, we often want exact answers for our life. We, who, as an adult, wishes that there was like an adulting playbook? Here's what to do. Here's exactly how to put your life together. Here's exactly how to pay your bills on time. Here's exactly the type of friends to have. Here's the exactly type of right friends to have and not the friends who are going to shade you and, and ghost you, right? Here's exactly the type of job you should have. You should have this type of job. This is the biblical type of job. It, we all want the exact types of answers for, for our life. And yet, what do we have come tomorrow morning? A bunch of bewildering dynamics that we're just trying to do the best we can with, right? 
I think that's what this passage draws us into is that when life is difficult, when life is just bewildering, like what do I do? It is God himself who was gracious, merciful, and faithful to us. Has anybody heard this term? Um, from, okay, first of all, show of hands. Does anybody know the, the name Martin Luther? Like, not Martin Luther King Jr., the original Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther has this famous phrase where he says to sin boldly. Now, that's going to, at first glance, we're going to be like, yikes, don't do that. Okay, can I just throw a quote up here, and we're going to read this and kind of see where he talks about this, and then I think pick up a Bible verse where he's talking about this. If you're a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners, but a, be a sinner and let your sins be strong or sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in, him, in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Next slide here. We will commit sins while we are here. For this life is not um, a place where justice resides, right? We can never act purely and perfectly is what we're saying. We, however, says Peter, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that though God's glory, um, it suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from him, even if we were to kill and commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price for a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. First of all, I just want to say, Martin Luther um, just kind of just throws it out there. Like, I would maybe nuance that a little bit differently. But his point is basically this. You can never get out of sinning until you have been glorified and redeemed at the final day with Jesus. That's not to say that you're the worst version of yourself possible. That's not to say that you're the worst sinner possible. It's not anything like that. It's just saying you, as a part of being human who's not been resurrected with Jesus, sin is a part of our lives. What he's pointing at, do not get all like in these mental loops about how I can like perfectly not sin in this life. Ecclesiastes, let me point this out. Ecclesiastes 7 16 to 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither a fool. Why should you die before your time? Ecclesiastes is picking up on the same dynamic. There is a tendency within Christian context to kind of like hand ring over how do I exactly in this situation that the Bible does not give me an exact command on follow God perfectly, right? I, I think this is where I love parenting books. They're very helpful. I love marriage books. They're very helpful. Those sort of things. But specifically in parenting and, mar and marriage books, there can be like, this is the biblical way to parent. And it's like, bro, like you've got commands of like how to be wise, but there's nobody who gives you a step-by-step -step how to like perfectly parent in the Bible. It's just not there. Same with marriage. Everybody's marriage is going to be totally different because everybody's married to a totally different sinner than they are, right? And that's just the way it is. What this is drawing us into is to say, we don't need to get like excessively like fixated on the dynamics of how do we make the exact right decision in our lives? Because like, what are all the dynamics of decisions that we have to make? Job, spouse, work, spouse, <laughs> work, 
do we get married, do we not get married? Do we take the job, do we not take the job? Do we move someplace else, or do we not? Do, how do we vote? What, do we vote for the Republicans or the Democrats? Do we vote for the independents to make a point? What do we do? The Bible does not give you an exact answer on any of those things. What the Bible continues to offer us is that God himself can work out all of the mess of our lives because he's faithful to us. You'll notice in this story, should Sarah have done what she did? Don't know. I've, I've never had a side chick that I had to figure out what to do in my own house. Thankfully. I wouldn't be a pastor anymore if I did. <laughs> I don't know what the situation, I don't know what the, I don't know what the call is there. There's lots of difficult dynamics that you're going to face in your life, or you've already faced this last week. What was the exact right decision? You'll notice God says, do what she's saying, and she provide, God provides for Hagar, protects her. God provides for Abraham and Sarah and protects them. God can be entrusted with all of those difficult dynamics that we just don't know what to do with. And we don't need to get all wrapped up in like the exact right decision. Faith doesn't knowingly sin. Right, so I just want you to understand, right? Like, God, I'm not saying tomorrow it's a really good idea, um, I don't know, to murder or whatever. But faith trusts that God can work it out. Can I give you an illustration to move, and, and, and then we can move on? All right. You guys know how much, like, I'm, I've got, like, a bro crush on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? You know, like, I quote him, like, every, like, month or two. Like, he's for real my man. All right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer grew up in a uh, very kind of upper-class German family. Probably was a once-in-a-generation genius. Um, you, you read his stuff, especially his academic stuff, and you're like, dude, like he was tracking with the top minds of the time. He also, through his own study of the Bible, became a pacifist and a devout uh, pastor. Right. So pacifism is when you don't believe in using violence, you don't believe that the Bible condones using violence against other people. So he, in the midst of that, is in German, the German culture, as the German culture is beginning to move towards fascism, celebrating Hitler, and ultimately promoting Hitler into being the, ru the king or whatever, the, the ruler, the heir, the, the Fuhrer of Germany, right? I'm, I'm putting the column between me and Shannon so I don't get to see her grimacing at my butchering of this story. <laughs> so, um, so, Bonhoeffer had all the class clout to be able to uh, kind of skirt around all of the German issues of the day. But he had the internal conviction that the church was being perverted by Hitler and that the, the disciples needed to be made to be able to stand up against Hitler. So he made this whole secret kind of like pastor's college thing where he would train pastors, deploy them out through the churches in Germany, and worked in that way. And yet, because of his family connections, he also had access to kind of getting out of going to war. He can kind of go and be a part of the intelligence agencies at the time. Now, as I said, he was a pacifist. He's committed to training pastors to pastor God's people in a compromised and, per and largely perverted church. And ultimately, he gets into a situation where he is involved with an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. See, Bonhoeffer wrestled with this very thing that we're talking about, right? We're not going to wrestle with the way Bonhoeffer did. But he gets backed into a situation of murder's wrong, I should not be killing somebody. But we're talking about Hitler. 
Not like, not like we think this person is like Hitler, actually Hitler himself. <laughs> and what does he do? At the end of the day, his position is, I'm going to trust God and make the right, best decision I possibly can. We often don't live in major life decisions like that. But just like we're seeing with Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, your life is going to be filled with complicated situations. The Bible is not going to give you an address card on the exact command that you should do in every situation. But what it continues to offer us is that God is faithful. He's persistently faithful. And wherever your faith lands on that faith cynicism spectrum, he's going to continue to be with you in those things. Okay. Are you guys cool if we finish out this story? You can ask any questions through the Q&A number. Okay. Finally, we've had, so just to kind of capture up things up to this point, we've had Abraham, uh, God providing his son, uh, the miraculous son to Abraham and I, uh, Sarah through Isaac. Abraham and Sarah having to kick out Sarah and Hagar. And then we finally come to the strange business de- deal between Abimelech and Abraham. We're just going to call this Faith Works with All People in God's World. At that time, Abimelech, a fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God what you will do, that you will not deal false with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt with kindly with you, you will deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Now, the rest of the story goes on to basically recount how a part of Abimelech's people tried to steal a, a well from Abraham. Abraham confronts him, makes a covenant with him to preserve the well for himself, and they get, enter into a covenant deal. Now, just to point out, Abimelech and their people are a part of the big baddies in Genesis 10. If you remember, there's a whole table of nations, and Abimelech's people are from the, uh, if I recall correctly, did I, I don't think I put it in my notes. Uh, they were a part of the Philistines. There you go, verse 32. 32, they were a part of the Philistines. They were the sworn enemies of God's covenant people. And yet here we have Abraham in the midst of his faith, trying to follow God, entering into a covenant with God's enemies to preserve his land, to actually buy more land, and to be able to provide for his people. Here is yet again another, like, what would you do? Like, these are, the, these are on the, the list of bad people that you don't do business with. And yet here Abraham is trusting the gods in the situation, making a covenant. Remember, a covenant is a, is a binding, like you die if you break it, oath. So here, Abraham is not trying to create a Yahweh ghetto, to use Old Testament language, right? He's not dealing with people who are only of the household of faith. He's entering into a covenant with people who are not of his same faith. I think just for us, one of the things we have to protect against is that um, we can sometimes in Christian culture think that if somebody's a Christian and they put a, a fish on their business card or whatever, that they should have preference for us working with them because, well, they're Christians, I'm Christian, we have the same values, we're going to work together. I understand that, right? We want to have shared values with people. But that does not always mean that God is in that contract or with us in that relationship. 
We have to protect against developing a Christian ghetto where we only do Christian things with Christian people because we're all Christians and we want to do Christian stuff together. Here, Abraham, as a part of his faith and trusting in God's presence in the messiness of life, is making a binding contract with somebody who does not follow God. His faith trusts that in the midst of all that is going on, he can work with and trust that God's working through other people who are not following God. So, here yet again, God's persistent faithfulness is the strength for dynamics in life that just do not make sense. Should Abraham have made this covenant or not? I don't know. God was the one who was in it and faithful. Okay. You guys cool? I want to pray. If you have questions, let's talk. God, as we've looked at this passage and done the best we can to string it together, I pray that you would help us. In the midst of all of this stuff, God, I don't know where we are today for each person here. We know where you are. You enjoy being with us. You're persistent in being faithful towards us. So we don't have to leave with answers. But we do need to leave with you. So I pray that we would experience your nearness to us, respond to you with faith, and trust that you're with us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.